The crisis is something deeper than just the loss of kind of membership and people. That the crisis is actually quite a productive crisis, and to kind of echo Karl Barth, it's the crisis of of God's action still in the world. The 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 God of the strange world of the Bible still breaking in and acting within the modern world, and that will always be a crisis for modern people. And that will be a crisis because God is holy, other and 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 God is righteous, and we are sinful. I mean, there's a deep sense of kind of crisis there, and so I, I'm trying to push and say American Protestantism has got the crisis wrong. That the that the crisis has been, you know, fewer and fewer people are coming to our churches. Let's let our hair on fire. Our institutions are weaker, which is an issue. And I don't want to downplay that. But maybe the bigger crisis is how do we testify to a God who still moves within history and still speaks to us and still gathers our communities. And um, that's a bigger crisis. It's a bigger crisis for cultural reasons, and it's a bigger crisis because. When you talk about that, you're talking about a God who is God, and、uh, for human beings to talk about this God is in itself、um, a beautiful, beautiful invitation, but also a crisis. It's good to be joined by Andrew Root and Glenn Packham. Both Andy and Glenn have been on the podcast before,、um, and I got really excellent feedback in the past when both of you gentlemen have been on. And you've just both come out in the past year with some new books that I saw points of overlap and intersection. Even though I think both of you guys would confess you inhabit slightly different contexts in the church, I thought it'd be interesting to get you both on for a dialogue together about、um, church decline. The influences、uh, and factors that have contributed to this significant cultural. Moment that we are experiencing in American Christendom and Christianity, and、um, to not just talk about those root causes of decline, but eventually to get to some points of talking about why we might be hopeful about the future if there is reasons to hope. But I thought a good place to start would be maybe just having each of you share sort of the back cover synopsis of what your most recent books are all about for those listening who are not familiar with either of you. And、um, Glenn, if you don't mind, oh, Glenn's Glenn's gonna. He's got both of them here. Excellent. He's done his homework. <laughs> he's got props, man. He's re- he's prepared. That's、exactly. right. That's right. Glenn, do you mind? Let's、uh, let's start with your your most recent、sure. book. Tell us a little bit about what it's about and、uh, a little bit of a, a little synopsis. Yeah. So it's called the Resilient Pastor Leading Your Church in a Rapidly Changing World, and the idea of it began more than two years ago when David Kinnaman, the president of Barna, approached me about partnering with them to do a book about the challenges facing pastors in a changing world. And what really drew me to it is, of course, my respect for the work that Barna has done over the decades in helping to resource pastors and churches, but also just the sort of model of writing and study that I would get to engage in, which is、uh, something that I kind of learned when I was doing my doctoral work at, at Durham in the UK, which is situational analysis paired with theological reflection. So that's what the book does. We we there's a it's a it's a blend of insight and wisdom, if you will, and the insight piece comes from. Uh, the survey instruments that I got to work with the Barna team to design went out to hundreds of pastors in the fall of 2020,、uh, early 2021 as well. 
and uh, some surveys that went out to the general population about attitudes toward the church and toward the pastor. And then I kind of came on the back of some of those data reports um, that they allowed me to kind of, you know, that we, we worked at looking at and analyzing together. And then I went, I went and did some focus groups with pastors in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K., and just said, tell me your stories about these eight challenges that, that I'd outlined. Uh, how do you relate to them and, and that sort of thing? And then I kind of went back into church history uh, through the scriptures because I didn't, you know, I got a little tired. Of course, the pandemic, you know, came shortly after I said yes to this project, which either was God's sort of way of tricking me into <laughs> saying yes or uh, or a way of demonstrating that maybe this was sort of an urgent project. But I, I was tired of people saying this is unprecedented, unprecedented, unprecedented. I mean, in one sense, yes, every moment of history is new. In another sense, the church has been here before, and there's so much that we can glean and learn from church history. So I was trying to find wisdom from the church, the global church and the historic church, to kind of match the insight into our situation that, that I was finding. And, uh, and, and that's, that's really the project. The eight challenges, four of them are for the pastor as an individual, uh, their own sense of vocation, spirituality, relationships, and credibility. And then four that are facing the church as a whole. Why do we gather in worship? How are we formed into the image of Jesus? Um, what is our mission in the world and how do we uh, preserve unity? So that's the, the nutshell of the book. It's beautiful. It's, an, a re- it's a really special book. I recommend not, it's not just for pastors. I think if you're a, just a, a congregant, a lay leader in your church, I, I, I would say add it to your library. And Glenn, as always, you do such an excellent job of... Um, it's really difficult to take maybe the, the kind of writing that people are most familiar with in academia and to have the sort of rigor of research and the thoughtfulness of writing condensed into a book that is also accessible at popular levels. And you're, you've done that on several occasions with, with your books and, and in you as well, Andy, I, th- I think you do that, do an excellent job as well. Glenn, would you be able to say just, um, again, for people that aren't familiar with you, um, as we're talking about maybe comparing and contrasting the different contexts that you've inhabited in ministry versus mm-hmm. what Andy has inhabited, what would be some adjectives that you would use to describe your particular tradition or the streams that you find yourself in right now? Well, I'm either a mutt or there's a creative synthesis of streams in the body of Christ here. But um, culturally, I'm from Malaysia. That's where I grew up. Uh, My earliest church memories were of the Anglican church that my family was part of. And then we switched to kind of this more Pentecostal, charismatic sort of uh, church. I've lived in the States for 25 years, more than 25 years um, now, and I I, I serve, I have worked over the last 22 years at a non-denominational, evangelical, charismatic uh, church. Um, at the same time, about eight years ago or so, I got ordained as an Anglican priest with the Anglican Church of North America, sort of consigned or assigned, commissioned, whatever, to 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 conform to the context that I'm in. So I am trying to hold together the sacramental, uh, the evangelical sort of love of scriptures is, is, and and personal faith and, you know, that, the, the Bebbington sense of evangelical, not the political sense of evangelical. And then the, um, you know, the, the sacramental and the charismatic, uh, I, I feel are sort of that intersection that I'm trying to live in. Definitely. And I'm thankful because I would say those are the sorts of places I, I find most alignment with. And your voice has been a valuable one in my own formation, Glenn. And for those of you that maybe want to hear more about that, um, 
Glenn's journey, that's certainly something we talked about in our first conversation. And you can go back in the the annals, <laughs> the, the deep, the deep recesses of the Deep Talks library to find that first conversation with Glenn and I. We can talk. We talk more about this sort of infusion of the sacramental with the charismatic and Pentecostal. So if that lights you up, we'll you can go back and um, certainly listen to that one. Andy, let's talk a little bit about you know. Actually, since the last time we've talked, I think you've come out with two books. You've been you've been busy, um, and you can certainly. To discuss both of them if you like, because I, there's obviously uh, overlap <laughs> in the two. Um, but perhaps maybe focus in on the most recent one that that Glenn did such a good product placement for there on the screen. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, I'm kind of intimidated because Glenn could synthesize his book so well, and I feel like I'll just ramble on. And maybe that says that his book is really tight. It's a wonderful read, and I feel like mine's a you know, mine scatters a little bit. So uh, yeah, you know, it, they, those two books are connected. That you know. Originally, I was supposed to write this three-volume called Ministry in a Secular Age, and it's now become five, and it looks like it'll be six volumes. So there's a little bit, you know, like the the major dialogue partner in this book is Carl Bart, and there's a little bit. The only thing that probably connects me and Carl Bart intellectually is he couldn't stop writing, and it, it appears neither can I. So <laughs> that's probably the only thing that really connects us in, at that level. But uh, I wanted to write like a, a full-on ecclesiology with the third book that ended up becoming Congregations in a Secular Age. And it just didn't happen. It became more of a kind of uh, kind of cultural, philosophical conversation between congregational life with some kind of theological responses to that. So I moved into this book that is called Churches in the Crisis of Decline, thinking that I would write that full kind of ecclesiology. I'm not sure that that really happened either, but it's closer. It's closer to that. So the, the real kind of threads I pick up in that book is to really think about um, kind of what the church is in relation to the crisis it finds itself in. And uh, that, you know, the worlds that, that I live in really are hit by decline in, in a major way. I think all of Protestantism is, is hit by decline, but uh, mainline Protestantism is, uh, really feels the, the threat of decline and the kind of institutional weakening and, and fragile, you know, fragilization of that. And so uh, I think that becomes idolatrous in some ways. You know, like that kind of fear has led even more so over the last couple decades that's really gone back for a hundred years of kind of evacuating this kind of sense of the theological or this sense of God's action in the world becomes more and more lost now inside of this kind of anxiety of the church losing, losing more and more ground, even though a lot of people can't even say what that is. So the, the, I guess the way I do my scholarship is to try to put very divergent things in conversation and see what happens. So there's like this putting together of it's like a really warped time travel book, basically. I don't know if I'm selling it to your listeners or making them run far, far away from it. But it's a typical it's this... Minnesotan self-deprecating self-deprecation <laughs> here, Andy. <laughs> maybe, yeah, it's, an, maybe. it's an excellent book, it Andy. Is. Andy, and the, the way you creatively sort of. Anyway, you, you keep describing it, that time travel thing, and then I'll... I'll come yeah, so now I've goaded you guys to compliment me. Now I even feel <laughs> feel worse about this whole experience. So, uh, but no, there's I, I try to take Charles Taylor's kind of early 21st century concept, particularly the imminent frame, and try to bring it back into the early 20th, 20th century and think of Karl Barth's theology as a response to the imminent frame. And so what does it really mean to be modern and never be able to escape being modern and yet not kind of be flattened by that that modernity how do we keep our 
ways of being church, the ways of thinking about the Christian vocation from kind of being flattened by, by imminence. So it's, it's really kind of playing with those, those ideas. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess that's what it's about. So the title is very clickbait, you know, like Churches in the Crisis of Decline. And I'm sure you both have had this experience where the title of the book's released and you get these emails like, ooh, I too have been so worried about the church's decline. We should talk or you should be on my podcast. Like, uh, actually, I don't know that we're going in the same directions here. Um, so it's a total clickbait title. And it's uh, ultimately trying to say that the crisis is something deeper than just the loss of kind of membership and people, yes. yeah. that the crisis is actually quite a productive crisis. And to kind of echo Karl Barth, it's the crisis of, of God's action still in the world, the, the, the God of the strange world of the Bible still breaking in and acting within the modern world. And that will always be a crisis for modern people. And that will be a crisis because God is holy other and, 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 and God is righteous and we are sinful. I mean, there's a deep sense of kind of crisis there. And so I'm trying to push and say American Protestantism has got the crisis wrong, that the, that the crisis has been, you know, fewer and fewer people are coming to our churches. Let's let our hair on fire. Our institutions are weaker, which is an issue. And I don't want to downplay that. But maybe the bigger crisis is how do we testify to a God who still moves within history and still speaks to us and still gathers our communities. And um, that's a bigger crisis. It's a bigger crisis for cultural reasons. And it's a bigger crisis because when you talk about that, you're talking about a God who is God. And uh, for human beings to talk about this God is in itself um, a beautiful, beautiful invitation, but also a crisis. So um, trying to walk into that, you know, how can finite language describe the infinite God? Like that in itself is a, is quite a big problem. So how does the pastor, you know, mount the pulpit and speak of this God? Um, it's a crisis every week to do so. And yet it's an invitation and yet God meets us within it. Mm, very well said. So the reason why I thought this di a dialogue could be productive, and again, I, I invite both of you throughout, you know, obviously I'll, I'll, I'll lead with some questions here, but feel free to cross-examine each other. I, I don't want this to be me just hosting. And you know, if you guys have questions for each other, I'd, I'd love just sprinkle those in. We want this to be a, a conversation together. Because what I hear you both describing is that there is there is some macro cultural at the macro cultural level. So when I talk about macro cultures, we think about like the West or American culture. And then you have subcultures underneath that. Let's say we're still talking about a larger one that is a shared universe where we say Protestant subculture in America, in the West. And then, of course, we might have a little bit of a split, a subcultural split underneath that between more evangelical culture and mainline culture. And what I find so fascinating is both of you are testifying to the the causal factors, at least on some level, contributing to to alienation, the experience of church decline, not just in numbers, but as you both in previous works, Andy, but in this particular work, Glenn, that you've done, are addressing the real shift in the life of the vocation of a pastor, yeah. too. Yeah. You know, we think about ourselves differently, and you're all pointing to something happening on a level of culture that's just beyond, well, you know, it was a contentious political election cycle for evangelicals. Obviously, that's a factor. I don't want to downplay that, but both of you are speaking to something that's it's, you know, if we take a crowbar and we can pry underneath that and we pry underneath another layer, we're talking about a shared layer of macro-cultural influence that that's really one I, I want to get at together. And I, I'd like to start, Andy, you start your most recent book with this 
this really fun, I, I hate to call it fun because it's it's a tragic story, even though I think you confess in the introduction that it's a it's a quasi-fictional story of a historic church that eventually ends up as a microbrewery. Mm-hmm. And um, you talk about the distinct phases in the life of this church, and I thought it'd be a good place to start because it 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 grabs on to so many movements, not just in mainline church um, culture, but also in evangelical culture, and addresses the different kinds of pastors that have emerged over the last couple of decades. So I was wondering if you could start by maybe at least paraphrasing that that wonderful story you start off the book with. Yeah, I appreciate that. It, it, I mean, this is it's a weird book because it's a time travel book, but then there's also like this this narrative in it. And so the way I think about it is kind of Quentin Tarantino in an alternate history, you know, like how he's his latest, I don't know, not it's not actually his latest, his last six movies have been kind of rethinking. It's every Quentin Tarantino movie. Right, right, right. The, re, rethinking these historical events and like asking what would have happened if things would have gone differently. So what is what is what really happened was sitting in a microbrewery that used to be a church and I can't remember where it was either Grand Rapids or Pittsburgh or something I mean these things are all around the country and uh you know it was like you looked at the menu and it said you know like whatever Pittsburgh's voted Pittsburgh's best wings the last three years running and there was just music everywhere and a lot of you know it was just a a very uh lively place to be but then you turned over the back of it and it was called like the church brew club or something there was some kind of connection to this and it just had one paragraph of the history of this church and that was it and the stained glass windows were still up and i googled the church just to kind of figure it out and so what the book really starts with is saying okay here's this church and we all would think it's a pretty tragic thing that a church becomes a microbrewery and depending on your location within that continuum of protestantism you'd have deeper problems for deeper reasons on what's happened here, you know, and you would interpret that in a different way. But what would have kept that church actually open? And and how do we think about that? And is it really a theological issue or was it just a kind of church management issue? Was it a failure of the denomination? You know, what what really went on here? So I, I play with this alternate history of like what would infuse it with life and and then kind of pick up on all sorts of narratives that I've lived through or, you know, it's my students have lived through, but, you know, like imagining a small church that's lost all of its people and they decide to hire a really young, um, very energetic pastor who rebrands the church and the name of the church is called St. John the Baptist and they rename it Thrive at St. John the Baptist and the whole idea is really from the pastor's energy, from this young pastor's energy that can get this congregation up and going and that there still is a possibility as they look around at their neighborhood that's gentrified and you know now there's all these young adults in there that if they could just they could just brand themselves right and if they just had a pastor who had excess energy then they could kind of upend decline and of course that doesn't happen and I'm sure there's cases where people actually do that and out of the talent and just the energy of a pastor they're able to to kind of find life but my experience particularly in the main line is that doesn't happen often at all and usually it just ravages why? The congregation. Well, why is that, Andy? Well, I think a big reason is, again, because we think what brings life. I mean, part of the big issue here that I'm trying to point to is what actually brings life. And really, we, we set up with a, 
a kind of negative presumption that what will bring life is relevance and resources. Yeah. And yeah. these relevance and resources kind of play in a, a kind of dynamic where the more relevance you have, the more you have openings yeah. to accrue resources. Or if you just have a lot of resources, then right. you'll be able to attract relevant people and relevant pastoral staff. And if you can just have enough of that, you can cash that in for members and, and just institutional viability. And so usually what happens then is, I guess this connects to the, the book, The Congregation um, in a Secular Age, where it just infuses a kind of sense of acceleration on, mm-hmm. on the pastor and the kind of depth in pastoral identity that, that Glenn's talking about in his book, and even this kind of sense of resilience just gets upended by all sorts of other things. And in my book, the, the, what I play with doesn't happen all the time, but a lot of time what, what happens is the pastor becomes quite frustrated mm-hmm. that the people aren't going as fast as he wants them to go. And therefore, the people become the problem, and then another job looks really good. Um, or it just leads to deep forms of frustration. Mm-hmm. And slower people, like usually older people, maybe people with disabilities, what, whatever, kind of get pushed out. And not directly like, we don't need those people here if we're going to be a good church, but it just happens. Like mm-hmm. these people... It can't move us towards relevance. They don't have many resources. So, what value do they do they have? You know, um, but the mainline response to that I mean, I guess you could stereotypically, and I don't even really think it's fair. You could say that's been more of an evangelical response, or you could just say evangelicals have done better at it. Though mainline denominations have tried, but where the mainline response comes in is to realize, oh, this isn't an issue of of kind of building this church and this brand that could attract young adults. The issue is politics. Um, the issue is a kind of relevance yep. that could engage this neighborhood. So what we need is we need a pastor who can really, really speak to the kind of the cultural political moments and lead this community into justice. Like it, And so justice becomes its own kind of relevance and, and, and branding. And that too leads the pastor to kind of turn on the congregation in, in some ways. And, uh, and often in the main line, it leads them even to turn away from the Christian faith, which has happened so often. Like, do we really need to have the particularity of Jesus Christ here? Because that seems to be oppressive and we're kind of embarrassed by our Christian confession. So maybe the most relevant way for us to be, and usually it is kind of a genuine thing of the pastor too. Like, well, maybe we're like a post-Christian community still looking for meaning and purpose, but really are really here to deconstruct the Bible. So you get this kind of heavy deconstructive move yeah. and that ends up ripping life out of the congregation too. And then you get the third phase, which is usually someone comes in after both of those things have failed and they just inherit an utterly dead community mm-hmm. and close the doors. And it just is, is kind of over. So the, the kind of relevance through resource program accruing or the relevance through like we are super politically engaged and we are you know we are we are leading the marches in our neighborhood and again there's something really to that but that kind of being what the church is ultimately for and we need to even be opposed to the christian tradition because that's the only way for us to really be relevant kind of undercuts both of those realities Well, I, I love I love your point, Andy, so much about unless we get to the deeper crisis of we've we've stopped looking for God at work uh, in His church and through His church in the world, uh, then everything else is just sort of window dressing, and I, that that deeply resonates with me because I think Andy that that failure to sort of take seriously the Spirit of God at work through the church 
um, is a failure that, that goes across. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, I can't speak for non-Protestant traditions or the Orthodox yeah. or the Catholic stuff, but it certainly is there in our non-denominational context, right? So there's so many there's so many points of of, of kind of um, uh, agreement and overlap that I'm, I'm thinking about as I'm listening to you talk. In chapter one of the Resilient Pastor, I, I talk about the shift the surge and the aftermath. And a lot of that is it's it's Taylor's work, it's your work, it's Jamie Smith's translation work of Taylor. And I use this this metaphor of the tsunami that happened on Boxing Day of 2004, you know, where there's the shift, there's the earthquake. And that, in, in the West, the sort of shift that has happened is the uneasy relationship between Christianity and its host culture in the West, where maybe it's set dormant or set quiet. It wasn't the same, but it at least set, uh, coexisted, if you will, uh, in, a, in a sort of... A, a, amicable way. And now there's more friction. There's more friction points. And when that happens, it results in this surge. And the surge is alternate meaning-making frames and alternate meaning-making uh, techniques. We, and I, I won't name all of that. But there is sort of this, this way that it impacts the church is it, it, it infects us with this assumption that we have to get on with life. And whether that is get on with life by political activism on the right and the left. I mean, we, we, we've read all the thought, the think pieces over the last couple of years about white evangelicals and, and republicanism and all that. Sure. But there's also, I, I don't want to make false equivalents, but there are some instances of it on the left as well, where, and, and, and you reference some of that, where we say, okay, this is the answer. This is what um, it, it, it looks like. But what both um, uh, when you act that way, sort of devoid of the Spirit of God, you're kind of, again, working on that same assumption that God is up there, Jesus is Lord of the afterlife, he'll take care of sort of internal, individual, spiritual, quote-unquote, things. Uh, but, hey, we've got we've to get on with, with running the world. And whether that is uh, a kind of embracing of, of a kind of economic system that just makes our life more comfortable or engaging in a kind of political activism that uh, is advocacy work— Unless we have the this the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit um, as an active sort of thing, uh, then, then we're going to miss both. And actually, I think, uh, guys, that's that's the overlap to me in the sacramental worldview and the charismatic worldview is both worldviews in different ways, but in in overlapping ways. Um, affirm that God is at work within his world, <laughs> you know? Now, the the excessive or sort of um, where charismatic theology goes wrong is where the spirit becomes this kind of escapist sort of thing. And that's why, you know, I'm not a fan of talking about the supernatural, but people in my tribe, they do that. And they use the spirit not as a way of saying, oh, God's here in the ordinary conversations, in the, you know, uh, but rather as a way to kind of escape that. So that's the temptation. That's if the, there's a Venn diagram, that's where charismatic theology kind of goes off on its own. Uh, but on the sacramental side, I think where it can maybe go off on its own is is to sort of say, well, uh, as long as we say the right words and do the right rituals, then that's the that's the power and presence of God. Regardless of our kind of anthropology of emotion and experience, we're not actually trying to help evoke um, what Edwards might have called religious affections. You know, we're not actually trying to provoke those things. So there's so many places we can go here, Paul. I mean, I'm thinking about even the worship, um, uh, the worship movement. You know, you talk about the church growth stuff. I'll just say this and then I'll let you guys kind of respond. The worship movement, when it started to switch towards the guitars and the drums and that sort of stuff, people assumed that that was only the product of church growth stuff and this was about relevance. 
Well, that was one stream. That that was the stream that that really the Jesus music and and a lot of that stuff that it was driven by that. But as the historians Sui Hong Lim and Lester Ruth have shown more recently in their big book with uh, Baker on the history of contemporary worship, there's a less documented stream um, that comes from the latter rain movement, which is a sort of this Pentecostal movement. And actually, it's that root system that has led to the Hillsongs and the Bethels and the whatever of, of, of the last, you know, uh, 10 or 20 years. And that's significant because that, that impulse was different. That impulse was always motivated by a presence of God kind of thing. It's the God is enthroned on the praises of his people, whether or not that's the right use of Psalm 22, or, you know. That's right. Temple and, ta and tabernacle metaphors for the goal of encounter with presence. Now, again, there's excesses and there's things we need to critique about that. But that's not the same motivation as saying, hey, let's bring in some guitars and drums so we can be hip and cool and relevant. And so, again, the, the, the diagnosis is spot on. The, the, the sickness affects both sides. Uh, but the cure, uh, can, there's hints of the cure actually in both sides. In If we would take our liturgies seriously, that when we say um, the epiclesis, we really are ushering in the, the Lord and the giver of life. And when we sing these songs, we really are and, and coming into this, this uh, living presence. Um, that's at least part of waking us up to the reality of God at work. Yeah, that's a really helpful way to frame it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, well, first of all, I think we have to admit that there's no way to escape the imminent frame. So th this is just, as, as long as you live in the West and kind of inhabit the larger institutional structures of the society that you inhabit it. You may, you know, you may go to church in East LA in a storefront church that's, you know, a very kind of charismatic church in, in Spanish. And at there's, there's times that those, the imminent frame doesn't impinge on you. But as soon as you go to work at LAX or, you know, you, you ride the bus system or whatever, there you are kind of back being moved within the, the imminent frame. But I do think, you know, like I think Glenn and I both really believe that the imminent frame can be opened up. Yes. And I think this is what Bar was trying to get at without without Taylor's language that there still is a way that the God of the Bible can move even in the imminent frame but we can't and I think this is what's you know happened I, I grew up in the the Missouri Synod so I have this like in in some ways kind of similar to Glenn have my foot in both kind of worlds where I you know and I, and I went to an evangelical college so uh, you know even in the Missouri Synod wasn't really evangelical but it definitely wasn't mainline and then you know um, so I so I have my foot in both of those worlds slightly, but my work world is absolutely in, in the main line. Um, but there is this kind of deep sense of uh, how do you open it up? Can you open it up? And there is a kind of defeatist sense on both sides to, to think that, well, you can't really open up the imminent frame. So all the church really becomes is just a, just a religious institution that's trying to thrive within this. Now, I think the overall kind of meta perspective that when the imminent frame is closed down and for a generation or two pastoral leadership and denominations or whatever we've been we've been kind of moved away from really trying to do the hard work and, and the painful work of trying to testify to how still God acts within the imminent frame um, what happens is we kind of inherit a pretty dead world where meaning becomes quite fragile and you know coming out of the pandemic I mean all these stories that are coming out of the Atlantic of you know, teenage depression yeah. and, you know, all, it's a pretty bleak place. Car accidents way up because people are driving crazy. I mean, there are all these really 
crazy things that happen after a pandemic that kind of shake us up yeah. and, and make the kind of taste of meaninglessness even more bitter. But I think what that, what that leads to is the only place to find significance and meaning and the only ultimate concern worth living, really living for is the self. So it's how you construct and operate and perform the self becomes the most important thing. And, you know, I just, this is kind of part of what it means to live in late capitalism, probably what it means to live is the, this uh, South Korean German uh, uh, philosopher calls the switch from the sh living in should societies to could societies mm -hmm. and the kind of living under the tyranny of that. Like, you know, we used to live under the should of these are the, these are the rules you should do, whether they're spoken or unspoken. And you can feel shame or guilt for not doing the should. Um, but now we feel overwhelming amounts of guilt for not mm -hmm being able to kind of operate in the could. You could do more. You could have done better with your life. You you could have you you could have uh, learned and got that other degree. You could have started that business. You could have huge, huge anxiety feeling. Um, right. And then you can die you kind of die under that anxiety. But in some ways it's the only way to infuse the imminent frame. I shouldn't say it's the only way. It's it becomes one of the most kind of consistent, culturally lifted up ways to infuse the imminent frame with meaning. And I actually think it, it forms. I'm trying to work on this now. It, it forms certain kind of forms of spirituality mm -hmm. that that kind of come in. So this is not a an imminent frame does not produce a world without spirituality. That's it produces right. a world with huge amounts of spirituality that's needed to actually cope with the natural kind of frozen cold imminence of our world so it births it's, it's just kind of ironic thing that a world that doesn't need god creates all sorts of spiritualities most of them that still don't need god but they can have spiritualities and the in the new center of that spirituality kind of be, becomes the self and what i find really deeply ironic with this is that guilt still becomes a kind of driving force of this and this was one of the things we were told that as we became more of a modern, imminent world, we could be free from guilt. You know, like you don't need any more Jonathan Edwards sermons about being in the hands of an angry God because guilt is all based in kind of religious conceptions that aren't true anymore and we don't need any guilt. And, you know, so I think like the kind of framers of the Enlightenment and, you know, Rousseau and his buddies would have thought, my gosh, by the time you get to the 21st century, they won't, we, people won't even, European societies and North America, if they could even imagine that, won't, won't need any language about guilt. Why would we need that? Well, of course, what's happened, I think, is particularly after a consumer society and into a late modern world, is guilt has arrived yeah. and it bites hard again now. It just so happens that what you're guilty to is not a God who stands before you and then when you are guilty before this God can lead you into a liturgy of confession and restitution. Mm -hmm. Now you are guilty to yourself. Yes. And the only resource to forgive yourself is yourself. So somehow you have to forgive yourself for failing to be everything yourself should have been. And you can see why people get so trapped in that cycle. Yeah. And then why you need people like, you know, I don't want to throw any shade here, but you, you know, you get people like a decade and a half ago, Oprah, mm -hmm. but now you get people like Brene Brown mm -hmm. who will yeah. teach selves how to forgive themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and, and really that too becomes a trap because then you realize, well, I, I really have to forgive myself for not becoming Brene Brown or not being the the mommy blogger who has all the followers and so who tells me to always forgive myself and not be so hard on myself, but I'm aware they are a much more interesting self than I am. Yeah. And if only I was a little more witty and had some more time and uh, maybe I could have as, just as many people recognizing me as they do. And so it's kind of this never ending guilt cycle that yeah. I think people enter into. And the question just becomes is the, is the 
congregation, the pastor really ministering to selves caught in that and almost perpetuating it? Or is there a way to break that in right. some ways? And um, yeah, I'll stop there. It's so good, Andy. It's so good. I'm, I'm nodding along and saying amen. Um, being very Pentecostal over here, uh, but trying to be quiet so I don't interrupt you. Um, I, I, when I, when um, you know, I mentioned the shift, the surge, and the aftermath as a way of sort of understanding kind of uh, the complexity of our world. That surge of meaning-making systems, because um, you're right, Andy. We 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 don't lose our hunger for needing meaning, for our hunger for meaning, and the the, the sort of need to, um, to 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 do something about guilt or our, our sense of, of falling short, our sense of not enoughness, and self-talk is not enough. But but three of those systems that I that I name, one is a kind of neo-pluralism. Now I I grew up in Malaysia where it it is a pluralistic society. Um, and, 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 you know, but, but the difference with that kind of pluralism is that I'm wondering here if we've lost and if we've lost Paul. I'm wondering that too. Yeah. I was, I was going to soldier on, but I don't know if I should. Yeah. I don't know either. <laughs> Maybe we, have bad Maybe we should soldier on cause it's, it's still it's recording, still recording right? yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll take yeah. that again. Yeah. Thinking about those um, alternate meaning-making systems, one of them is a kind of neo-pluralism. Now, I, I grew up in Malaysia where there's a plurality of religions. Uh, Muslims were the majority, you know, about 50%, 48% or something like that. And then you had Buddhists and you had Hindus and Christians were a mere 10%. But the difference between that sort of classical pluralism, if I can call it that, is you don't shade the lines. You don't, you don't right. blur the lines. You don't cross over into each other's world. You just sort of respect right. it. Uh, and, and, and again, in Malaysia, you, you wouldn't really try to convert one another because that'd be a little bit, yeah. that's a little bit offensive. And you certainly don't mix and match. But the new pluralism is what we see in the West. And it's, it's again, it's a mix and match kind of thing. And like you said, Andy, it places the self at the center. And, and so the self becomes the, the way that you determine what is true and what is not true. And the self becomes the way that you decide what, you know, what you can mix and match. The, the trouble is, and this, <laughs> this is, you know, ironic, is it's actually kind of a peak of Western arrogance, you know, because here, once yeah. again, we decide these ancient Eastern faiths or whatever, and we say, well, actually, we can decide what's valuable from Buddhism and what's valuable from Christianity and Judaism or whatever, and we can create our own thing. I mean, in, I, I name it sometimes hesitatingly as a kind of religious colonialism where, you know, in the age of empires, we moved people and cultures and spices around. And now we're moving religious ideas around, and but we're mm -hmm. doing it in the service of our own, um, the empire of self. So yeah. then, then there's the sort of neo-paganism which is very yeah. much the imminent frame kind of thing where earthbound gods that deliver the kind of goods that we need. And it's, it's, it's pragmatic and it's therapeutic and it's, um, you know, it's, it's designed to just sort of give us what we need. And I, I'm thinking here of, of making the markets uh, and giving the market sort of an ultimate place, treating yeah. it like a god or treating yeah, the state. Absolutely. Yeah, treating the state as a kind of god, making the state ultimate. Um, so the market, the state, um, technology itself, technologism, you know, could be included in that neo-paganism frame. And then the, the final one is this kind of ultra-individualism, which is exactly what, what, what you've named, where mm -hmm. we become the, the, uh, the, the construction of self and then the expression of self and then the affirmation of the self by the society in which we belong. Mm -hmm. Th those are sort of the three uh, stages here. I, I think Carl Truman might want to add the sexualization of the self uh, into that list as well. Um, but what, what, whether we, we include that or not, just the, the notion of the, the constructed self 
um, that nobody else uh, can speak into except to affirm. So you're right too, Andy, that, that this is absolutely part of the air that we breathe. It's the water we're swimming in here, you know, so the shift, the surge, the aftermath, like after the tsunami is just sort of this, this chaos of, of debris and death and all this stuff, which I don't mean to take away from the actual tragic event that happened, you know, in 2004. Sure. Um, but even as a, as a parable or a metaphor for our moment, I think it's helpful to say it, it's a messy aftermath. People in our churches, it's not as if, oh, they just believe the gospel and they don't believe those other frames. No, they're actually more dangerous because they might still be worshiping the self, but now using Jesus to self-actualize, you know. Right, it, it, exactly. it may not be Brene Brown. It may be their pastor who's yeah. saying, look, what Jesus is offering you here is a chance to believe in yourself and go for your, your biggest dreams. So it's this sort of pseudo mix of capitalism and individualism, but with a little Jesus dust on it. And that that's right. actually more dangerous than quote unquote secularism, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that becomes the theological problem that is not that different from, you know, mainline evangelical or, you know, on those sides is where Jesus God becomes an idea that then kind of helps you brand or helps you think about that perspective and in um yeah so uh, sprinkling the jesus dust <laughs> on the performative self and how you could be all you could be yeah. you know becomes um yeah it becomes a real danger yeah um and yet you know at least at least in the, like this the synods and things that i'll i'll speak in the churches that lean in that direction are the ones who grow who yeah. are able to harvest resources yeah. and yet those are the same pastors who end up burnt out or in some kind of moral failure mm -hmm. a decade later you know so yeah these things are connected to these big frames but also to psychological realities which you're, you're right you know that you your book points out to so well too well, it's interesting well. you mentioned the resources thing again because in, in some ways capitulating to that and saying oh well look it's pragmatic it's working that's like that neo-paganism thing and once again yeah. we've made ultimate gods out of this sort of economic grid or this, you know, capitalistic grid. If it's, if it grows, right. it's good. And, right. um, and, and when we look actually at the created world, not everything that grows is good, right? No, and, like and cancer. Cancer is not good. <laughs> Tumors are not good. It grows good. really well. Yeah. That's probably the problem with it. <laughs> exactly. And, and biologically, we don't keep growing by, by, by expansion. We eventually grow by reproduction or multiplication. Right. Um, we, right. we don't grow to infinite heights or infinite weights or sizes, right? So no. in, in a similar way that the critique on the church growth movement is, it's not that, um, so we don't want to say all growth is good, but neither, neither do we want to say all growth is bad. What we need is a more nuanced appraisal here of what kind of growth and to, right. to what end and for what purpose and all, all, of, all of that sort of uh, thing. Yeah. You'd be very disturbed if you had a four-year-old that was seven and a half feet tall. <laughs> you know, you would think something is wrong. In the same sense, you would be very disturbed if your four-year-old was, you know, still the size of an infant, yes. too. You know, like, yes. there, there's reason to, to be concerned about both of those things. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you guys probably lost me there for a second. My computer we did. completely we did. died. I'm glad the dialogue kept <laughs> kept going. And forgive me if you guys have already addressed this so far. It seems like as as Andy was sharing, and my computer just totally uh, decided to go out on me. I, I was reflecting a bit on how these forces are not just about people outside of the church, as you, it seems like you've you've already addressed. I'm curious though, what about for those who have experienced the um, maybe the disintegration 
of the their own experience of Christian community, they found themselves unable to find a sense of satisfaction and meaning in the Christian story as they've experienced it in the mm-hmm. in the secular age, in the imminent frame. And now they have turned to perhaps these DIY spiritualities. Um, maybe we can address a little bit from your vantage point why, and you can be apologetic here, it's fine, why you think the church, Christian community, and the Christian story with a proper and healthy dose of reformation may still be the better um, option than the sort of DIY spirituality, the we're going to find transcendence and other means, we're going to do the, you know, you talked about Brene Brown. I mean, for a lot of young men, there's like the Jordan Peterson route, which is like all you got to do is clean your room, live a... (laughs) A uh, very moral life, and there's there's a lot of good that comes from getting your own life together and self responsibility, no doubt about that. Um, and then there's also sort of like the Joe Rogan esque. Mm-hmm. We're going to experience transcendence through this psychedelic resurgence. I don't want to necessarily get into all of the the, the the potential weeds in that specific subject matter, but it is interesting that as people don't find. Yeah the thing that they're looking for in Christian story and the Christian community that they've experienced, there is still this longing for transcendence. Why do you think though, Andy or Glenn, like the sort of DIY spirituality stuff is, uh, is still going to be deficient? I mean, I, you, you said apologetic. I think you meant like using apologetics sort of stuff to defend Christianity, but I actually want to take it in the other, the other sense of that word. Um, I think people leave for a reason, and and we've given them plenty of reasons to leave. I, I, I mentioned that I've been at the same church for 22 years. 16 years ago or so, our founding senior pastor had a pretty public moral failure and uh, made headlines a- a- around the world. And, and so I had front row seats to that. In fact, many of the people that I pastored in my congregation at New Life downtown were people that were high schoolers during that era and then were about to walk away, and then they found something a little bit different. Uh, largely the, the connectedness to historic worship was, a, was a, a tethering force in their faith, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So the first thing I really do want to say is I, I'm, I'm sorry um, to people who, who have felt that. It's a tragedy um, that the church has not lived up to its calling, has not lived up to its savior. It's a tragedy that the under shepherds have not resembled the good shepherd at all, you know? Um, so truly, I mean, I, I understand it. And I think when I, when I listen or when I find out that people are drawn to that sort of alternate communities and alternate priests, if you will, uh, via those podcasts, um, they're doing it for a reason and they're doing it off, oftentimes because there's been a great disappointment in their life. And the, the, the story that holds a lot of power for me, uh, Paul, as I think about this moment is the story in Luke 24. It's a, re- it's a post-Easter story, you know. It's Jesus finding these disciples walking away from Jerusalem, sad. And just right there, that little, that little framing of the story, a little setup of the story says everything about our age. Jerusalem, as we, we know in the Hebrew Scriptures, was meant to be the center of the whole earth, it was meant to be the joy of the whole earth. The prophets and the psalmists sang songs and, and wrote poems about the nations processing toward Jerusalem. People were supposed to walk toward Jerusalem, not away from it. But these disciples in Luke 24 are walking away from Jerusalem sad. 
And that is like many of these people. They're walking away from conventionally religious spaces, sad, disappointed, disillusioned. Does that mean I've given up on the idea of the church? I have not at all. Um, I, I believe very much that the church in, in Ephesians is my favorite go-to sort of place in this, that Paul, there's not a single, when he's talking about the church, he, he's not using individual pronouns. He's, we don't catch it in a lot of our English translations, but even when he uses that temple language, the infilling language, it's all plural. So there's a, there's a special sense of God's presence, speaking of God being active in the world, that we only encounter when we gather together as the people of God. Um, so I believe in that, but what is striking to me about Luke 24 is Jesus doesn't do the come to me moment. He joins them. Um, the common English Bible says he joined them on their journey. And I just, mm -hmm. I love that. I, I, I wonder if that's going to be maybe the first step of our, our, our posture, um, in this, uh, in this moment, in this sort of crisis of decline or whatever, um, is to take that posture of the risen Jesus. If ever there was a time he could have said, guys, watch me glow, <laughs> you know, come and, come and see me. <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't put on the lights in the show. Let's take this to Vegas. Exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. He, he goes the opposite direction. He goes low and he mm. goes incognito with these, these disciples. He mm. retells the story of scripture with suffering at the center of it. That's remarkable. He retells the story of scripture with suffering at the center of it. And then he uh, receives hospitality and then ends up becoming, acting like the host. Uh, in their in their um, home, and so if that's a bit of a parable for us, then the the willingness to join people on their journey of disappointment, to listen to the, their pain, the willingness to um, tell a story that has a suffering God at the center of it. Yes, a good beginning, and yes, a glorious ending, but a suffering God at the center of it. Mm -hmm. And then and then thirdly and finally, the willingness to sort of receive and give hospitality. Um, that is. It's not quite programmatic for what the church should be, but I do think it's a it's a beautiful picture of how our posture should be in this moment. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, my only follow up is, you know, first of all, that's beautiful, and you know, following that road to Aramaic story, which is, you know, that that then they realize it's Jesus, and they head back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples, and then Jesus shows up in their midst again. And there's really a profound word that happens in Acts 1. Like when we think about the church and decline and what the church needs to be, we always like to kind of start with Acts 2 and the Pentecost experience. But really before that comes a different command, which Jesus tells the community just to wait. Just stay here in Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit to come. Wait for me to arrive. Wait for the wait for the spirit to, to arrive. And I do think that is a really important disposition we need mm. in this time. And um, I try to draw that connection to, you know, like a, a kind of proto-Pentecostal thinker, at least a, a good German pietist, uh, uh, Christoph Blumhardt, who really, I think, inspired inspired Bart. Um, and, you know, his own father was such an inspiration and built this church around a exorcism experience that is incredibly like, I don't know how it hasn't become a Hollywood movie. It's so amazingly wild. Um, but but the Bloomhearts really was this idea that God still acts and moves yeah. and teaches Bart to say the great word God again. But the response to this, the, the human way of being to this is first to wait, mm. is to wait for this God to sh sh show up. And it's not a kind of kind of pathetic, apathetic waiting. It's an intentive waiting mm. with often a kind of watchword, waiting for this God. This is the God who kind of moves. The, the God, Jesus Christ, who's victor, will show up. And, and helping the community kind of share this kind of framework to, to wait for God to arrive. But I think... I think we're uncomfortable with that. I think the imminent frame tells us like, well, this God doesn't really 
act. So we better do some stuff to keep people at this church, or no one's gonna no one's gonna stay here. Wow. And we we better have some some sticky places that keep them connected, or this is all gonna disappear. Um, instead of maybe the, the the core pastoral disposition of our communities is to be waiting communities that wait in prayer, that wait in storytelling, that that wait really in storytelling around what you were saying, Glenn, around experiences of suffering and loss, mm. because we trust that the God of Israel, the God of Jesus Christ, arrives where there is suffering and death. When Israel is is at its lowest in Egypt, this God shows up. When Jesus Christ is dead, God shows up and raises him from the dead. So we're just very attentive that when there are experiences of loss and brokenness, our God may arrive. So we continue to kind of narrate those experiences, be attentive to those experiences, but we do really have a disposition of waiting in prayer and prayerfully waiting. And uh, that seems so un-like American. And when you feel like the hot breath of decline at your neck, like that feels like the most pathetic thing you could do is yeah. wait. But I do think there's a kind of counter reality here. Wow. Is it, maybe the church's only way to survive is to wait together faithfully. Wow to take the sacraments, to hear the word preached, and to wait for God to show up. Mm. And I wish I, I wish I had a checklist of what that will exactly look like, and I don't, but, um, mm. but it will take a kind of resilient pastor like Glenn has mentioned who can mm. lead a congregation into waiting for God. That sounds countercultural as we're in this age of acceleration, Andy. Yeah, like, absolutely. It's obviously, there's countercultural features to this, and this seems to be the unique tension. We can get into like some cultural theology here. There seems to be the unique tension of manifesting in the Christian community a witness to Christ that is simultaneously counter to particular values that seem to be against um, against the shalom of creation. And yet, there's also been, especially, I would say, Glenn, probably in our context, maybe more so, I don't know, maybe this, you would say this is also the case in mainline, there's a, there's a degree in which this sort of like, we are revolutionary, we are, uh, the counterculture manifests itself as like, you know, DC Talk Jesus Freak songs, you know, in a way that goes, well, I, I don't know if the goal is to be countercultural, so how do we is you know thinking through like for pastors for people that are committed to their church communities right now and they're working through this stuff and they go all right i know you just said like there's not a metric for this thing but it's like how do we know if we are in the way of jesus to what degree should we be a people of waiting when the world around us is accelerating and yet simultaneously not be like the essenes you know mm -hmm. we're not going totally christ yeah. Christ against culture and say there's no redemptive value to what God is doing in the culture, the macro culture outside of our local context and communities. So how do we hold these things in tension? What might be some signposts that you'd say, whether you're just a lay leader in your church, whether you are in, in the, you know, a traditional institutional church setting, you are in a house church, whatever the case may be, what are some ways of evaluating the health of church communities to say, we are on the way of Jesus. I, it's 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 such a it's a great question, but a complex one because I don't I don't think there is a one size fits all. And one of the reasons the Book of Acts gives us so many different kinds of stories is to help us understand that there's a wildness to how the Spirit works, and yet the consistent thread is it has to be the mission of Jesus continuing through the people uh, who are called by His name. Mm -hmm. And not just the mission of Jesus, as Eugene Peterson, you know, the Jesus way was, was one of the 
uh, one of the landmark books um, for me in my journey that I read. I mean, I, really, all of Eugene's kind of, uh, you know, corpus. Um, but, but, but that idea of not just the Lord's work, but in the Lord's way. So mm-hmm. I, I think what we're talking about with the sort of rush to pragmatism, it's not that action is always the wrong choice. It's not that it's not that resources itself are bad. Of course, they can be wonderful, you know. Um, but it, are we doing this in the way of Jesus, or are we just sort of mission driven? that we are trying to do the work of God without it looking or resembling like the you know Jesus himself. So Tom Wright talks a lot about the the kingdom continues to sort of be um, uh, implemented, if you will, the, the, the fruit of resurrection continues to be implemented by the same way that it was inaugurated, i.e. the way of the cross. And, and so the, w- the way of sort of death and resurrection is the way that the kingdom continues to arrive. Um, and if in any if in any sense we are being incongruent with that, uh, then we should check ourselves. So the church, big or small, whether it's it's you know led by a community or, or not, there has to be some sense of communal discernment. And I think this is what you see in the Book of Acts: is there there's a communal discernment going on, saying where do we think the Spirit might be at work here? Where, where do we think? But again, like Andy said, the premise is God is at work and God is speaking. And so now, and he has spoken in fullness through the word, Jesus himself. So now it's our task to, with the Spirit's help, to discern how we can continue to conform to the life of Christ and the way of Christ so that the mission of Christ can continue in us. That seems like a really good actionable step, Glenn, that you just mentioned, is to get at, I think, if in your own local community, through your process of discernment, you come to realize we haven't really lived as if God is at work in his story still. If you come to find that out, that would certainly be, um, it seems to me, like priority number one. Are we living as if the living God is still active and at work in his church, in the world, through the work of the Spirit? Or are we um, are we just, you know, kind of like reenacting, you know, something that we believe happened long ago, and yet we are still living as if, imminence is all that we have. If you can discern that, that seems to be a really important first step. Because if you don't get that right, it seems like everything else underneath, you're still going to be, um, you're going to still have the wrong ultimate concerns. Mm-hmm. Andy, what else What else do you hear in yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, the other thing that I would, building on that is just to say, and, and you guys may have a better idea of how to kind of land this really practically, but the the if, if in some ways we have our lives in and through stories and narratives, I mean, a question within the life of the congregation is, what is the story we're telling? And what I mean by that is so many inside of this kind of dark cloud of decline, the story most churches tell about themselves is the story where the church is the star of the story. Mm. You know, like, this is what we're doing in our neighborhood. And, and in some ways, we're told to do that from business literature and other things. Like, it, no company's going to survive without a good story. I mean, I've watched enough Shark Tank episodes to know that you got to have a good story if you're going to, if you're going to get a, if you're going to get, you know, venture capital or whatever, Shark Tank capital. But I, I do think kind of biblically and theologically, the story that's really the the one that we're called into is the story where the church is not the star of it that the church has a supporting role and a narrating role but the real story the star of the story is god and god's mm. act to mm. save the world to redeem the world and so the church has to find its place inside of this larger story so to say that we need to be a waiting church does not mean 
it, there's a paradox here. It means that God is active in the world, that God is moving in the world, but the church has to respond to, to God's action in the world. Mm-hmm. And so that to me, that becomes a big one. Like, what is the yes. story we're telling? Yes. And when it's, when it's a matter of decline, well, then you're, you're, you're pretty much told by your denomination or by your supervisor or by just the fact of looking around at whatever conference you, you go to, whatever like, kind of pastor's conference you go to, is like, find your church's story and tell that story over and over again and make sure it's the most important thing and you better find your story. Um, and in some ways, I get that, you know, just at a practical level. But at another level, it really sets your people up to think the drama of God's work in the world really is about... Uh, our product uh, about who we are. We're really the story, I think, of a fair ecclesiology is that the church is essentially important, but the church doesn't get to stand up for in the Oscar for, you know, lead actor in the role. The church always plays supporting role in this. And the church has life only as it points away from itself to Jesus Christ. And and God, through the, the, the Trinitarian God is redeeming the world and the church will play a piece in that you know mm-hmm. a, a huge piece in that but the direction of god's action is not necessarily towards the church it's really towards the world and how do we kind of remember that in the story we tell the other piece i would say really practically and this goes back to glenn even apologizing for people who you know apologizing to people who depart is that i do think inside of this kind of waiting one of the pastoral tax tasks is to really care about the kind of conditions and temperature of the relationships in the community are we really being with and for each other, even as we just live and wait together? And that's a huge leadership call to just really tend to the humanity, the people there, help them see each other. Um, that's, I think, really significant and important. And I think one of the other kind of meta realities of our late modern world is there's just this huge temptation in this accelerating realm to turn every relationship we have into an instrumental one. And that does really happen when we when we lift up as an idol resources and relevance is that every interaction you have with every human being has to be able to parlay into some other relevance and resource. And that happens within the church so much, but it happens outside the church in you know, every way in our culture. And so I think one of the huge prophetic elements that seems really like we're being lazy or not being really attentive, but to create communities where relationships are for relationships and we just really share in each other's lives Mm. for the sake of sharing in each other's lives because ultimately god and the person of jesus christ shares in our life and jesus christ is with and for us so we are with and for each other and ultimately with and for the world that that's a huge huge change you know and i think insight decline you feel like you have to use every relationship as a resource to get more or you're going to be dead and then you're going to feel so guilty that you were the person who had to shut your church down or you're you're the person who saw for eight years the church go 10 percent decline you know like i don't want to be that so we have to be able to parlay every interaction we have into more and that also just sucks something that kind of perpetuates this this uh this spiritless imminent frame yeah. that will lead people running to dyi yeah you know, websites to find some way to, to help their lives find some kind of meaning when everything has become instrumentalized. You know, Paul, That's I think what, what, what's going to be hard is, is for many pastors, they can't escape the pressures of, yes, yes, I like that, but if I don't make budget, I don't have a job. I don't feed my family, you know, so, I, right. I, I, and I, yeah. I do feel that. I mean, there's, I think there's some new data that came out that the size of the average church went down from 99 to 65. So we're talking about, there's a lot, whole lot of pastors that are bivocational, that are feeling this this press. 
So there might be someone listening saying, well, that's nice guys, but like, I don't know how to pay the bills, you know? And I, I do, I do wonder, you know, about, um, how networks and how denominations and how, you know, we can, we can come alongside that and help them. And these are, these are big conversations. My friends in the UK having these big conversations about revitalizing churches in, in the right way, you know, not in the sort of gimmicky way, but what's, what's good and what's bad and what's dangerous and what's tricky and what does violence to the, the sort of inherent fabric of a community when someone comes in from the outside. So it, it's, it's a tough thing because if you think about it, if, if you are trying to do this patient, slow work of, of rebuilding, um, but the resources aren't catching up to that, then you do need some sort of outside help. But then that outside help yeah. is always running the risk of either imposing their values or imposing their timeline onto that uh, context. Wow. So it's, man, uh, this is why my heart just goes out for pastors because it, it can feel like a no-win and it can feel like you're at odds with your own convictions sometimes. And you say, well, I don't want to be a pragmatist, but, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, and mm-hmm. so... Man, I do. I do hope for greater creative collaboration. I do hope for for generous networks and partnerships that are able to sort of um, make it so that the resource question, you know, it's there. And again, maybe there's some consolation that this is there in the Book of Acts as well. They're taking up a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. They're trying to help one another out. I mean, the the the, the Antioch kind of thing and the, the 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 early church movement becomes translocal very early on in the sense that they start to feel responsible for for each other's uh, communities. And maybe that's part of how we we get through this. Yeah, mm, that's excellent. Yeah, that's well, good I thought, word. Yeah. I'd like to close with one question for you and um, put you both on the spot a little bit. I th- I'm, I'm a big fan of, um, in the end of, I think it's volume three of McClendon's systematic theology called Witness, he closes by laying out perhaps an alternative framework for thinking about Jesus's high priestly prayer in John 17, that we would all be one. And instead, uh, McClendon argues that instead of arguing uh, together between different tribes and different streams as to who actually has the, we can trace uh, our particular tradition all the way back through an unbroken line to the apostles, that perhaps we should think about each of us having different convictional locations in which we speak with, we speak in part, we see in part. And what actually we need is the different vantage points of each other and the emphases that we bring to bear in the world. So whether that's, you know, Glenn coming from a larger charismatic evangelical church to Andy, you know, you're just down the street from us at a, uh, you know, at a, a local neighborhood church that's much more in the mainline tradition. And I'm in a yeah. 140 year old free church, low church. Uh, I'm curious, I'd love to hear from you, what would you say, um, and Glenn, I'll start with you, what would you say is like, boy, this is what I see when mainline churches are doing this well, that low church, evangelical churches, my church needs to grab a hold of that and bring it into the life of our particular community in a way that if we do this, it's going to be a blessing to our community, the world around us. And maybe even a part of the remedy for what people in our um, context are feeling as they they feel trapped in this this imminent frame. Two things come to mind right away, and you know, the last ten years, having led a our congregation downtown, you know, the vast majority of other downtown churches are mainline denominational churches, and I I think uh, well, let me say three things actually. One is this great sense of 
a stability um, that that denominational uh, denominations have, um, and that's a gift to the the wandering sort of nomad. Um, because then what, what we're not inviting them into is come follow this energetic preacher or this sort of hot new worship band, but join a story that's been a couple hundred years in progress, but actually is connected to a story that's been 2000 years in, in, uh, in motion. So that, that, that rootedness, that sense of a, a rope that ties you to church history, I think is one of the great gifts of denominations. Um, secondly, kind of related to that is the sense of sacred. Uh, the sacred or even specifically sacred space. Um, and, and maybe I'll just bundle in with that, the gift of contemplative spirituality. Um, my tradition is very noisy <laughs> and it's very externalized <laughs> and it's very, you know, I mean, if you're not, if you're not talking, you're not feeling it, you know, and if you're not feeling it, what's the matter with you? Um, and the gift of a, a contemplative spirituality has been to, to recognize um the other mode of encountering the Holy Spirit, um, this, this, this quieter sense. And so every time I can sit in a cathedral or, or read a prayer book or go to Evensong or, you know, hear the Psalms being prayed and sung, there's a reminder here that it's like, hey, the pressure's not all on you to fabricate something. Or in fact, as you said, Andy, we're not the main actor in the story here. So we show up and place ourselves in the scene, if you will, and then let God do what God does, even if it's quiet and unbeknownst to us. The, the kingdom is like mustard seed. The kingdom is like yeast mm -hmm. in a dough. It's not dramatic, but it, but it has exponential results. And then maybe the third thing that comes to mind that I've uh, you know been so impressed with over the last decade as I've gotten to partner with many of the denominations downtown is the the commitment to um, practical service as an expression of their mission. Um, mm -hmm. Our non-denominational world has been disembodied uh, in its uh, articulation of mission. And so even the language we use, we're going to get souls saved and all of this stuff. And I just, that, that, um, bifurcation of the kingdom mission into either acts of care and justice or a proclamation of, um, of the forgiveness or of sins or the gospel is a false duality. And so I'm not saying to replace our, our, our passion for proclamation, but I'm saying understand that when you proclaim Jesus, it's good news for the poor. It's supposed to be good news for the poor. And so mm -hmm. the church's presence has to actually be good news for the community that it mm -hmm. lives in. And some of that disembodied stuff shows up in my tradition where evangelical churches are so about these kind of meta movements or like, oh, let's start this thing. Let's have these conferences and all that stuff. And then you think, but what, it, what does your presence actually mean for the people in this zip code, you know? Yeah. And I think denominational churches have a fabulous history of answering that question well. That's beautiful. My turn now? Yeah, go for it, Andy. <laughs> no, there's a few things that I would say. I mean, first of all, the um, the overall ability to, to have a kind of sense of the beyond. And what I mean by that is that there is something beyond human, just human flourishing. You know, so I think Glenn's point that, like, it, the gospel has to have an expression to the poor. Absolutely. Um, and yet sometimes that can get locked down where the only thing that really matters is that we help human beings flourish. Mm -hmm. And it's usually not even really the poor. It's just that we help human beings feel okay about their identities over and over and over again. So is there something beyond human flourishing? Um, and is there something beyond death? Or is that is that some kind of... Uh, 
pre-modern, you know, illusion that we should be embarrassed to talk about that there's something beyond death. And I think that's a real hindrance in both ways to, to mainline Christianity in that I find when I'm with evangelical communities, the ability to talk in a way that makes a presumption that there is something beyond, there's something bigger even than human flourishing. And there is something beyond death that we should contemplate and think about is uh, something that, that I think mainline communities could really draw from. The, uh, the other thing I would say that connects with language too is the ability to talk about the negative. And I think this is kind of works in a, a, a kind of dialectical way too, because I think Glenn's point is right. Like you know, at least some traditions in the mainline have been really willing to have theologies of negativity. Like I can think in my own kind of Lutheran reformed kind of Presbyterian tradition that like a theology of the cross is really quite significant. So to talk about God being known in the negative reality of the cross, but where that doesn't, where that breaks down and particularly in the last, you know, 20 years or so is the negativity to talk about like your own self, like the yearning of the self for something bigger and maybe even conviction from something outside of you being true where there's a, there's a huge barrier now. Like, you know, you don't, you should never really tell anyone how to live their lives and we should really just support the ethic of uh, authenticity all the way through. And the best churches are those who don't make people ever feel bad about themselves and, you know, woe on any, any Christian church that makes anyone feel ever bad about themselves is, I, I think there's, I think we miss something. And at its best, I think evangelical communities form people to be able to face the fact that, yeah, there's something not quite right about the human experience and that we need something from outside the self to save the self. And the self doesn't have its resources in itself to save itself. And so sometimes, yeah, you need to be convicted for sin or you need to realize and allow your pastor to tell you you've gone the wrong way. Um, now, of course, that can go crazy bad too and become spiritually abusive. But the response of the mainline has been never, ever say anything bad about anyone's kind of own person. And I just think that's been really difficult for faith formation of how we talk about kind of the the, the negative dynamics of what it means to be a human that still yearns mm -hmm. and still fails. And uh, those realities don't get talked about because you don't want to tell anyone like, you know, like going through a really ugly divorce is a, is a problem and it can be really hard on your kids. No mainline pastor ever wants to say that to anyone. Um, and that's an overstatement, but not by much. Wow. Well, I think the churches that you've described here, if we synthesize these together, I think there's a lot of listeners to this program who are maybe struggling to find a church community that would go, I would go to that place, I'd plug into that place. And um, so there are people, just as an encouragement, there are pastors out there, there are theologians that are influencing churches like Andy, who um, these sorts of dialogues are happening. So be hopeful uh, hopeful that we can continue to reform. You know, that's that's one of the things, the shared Protestant um, emphasis on ever reforming. And uh, we don't need to, yeah. we don't need to tear the whole thing down to the studs with each successive generation and have to build from scratch. There's something that we can learn as we dialogue together. And I think what both of you just shared sounds beautiful to me. Sign me up <laughs> for that kind of church life. 
Andy Glenn, thank you for your time. Uh, apologies for the computer bugging out on me midway through. Hopefully we still are able to recover the entirety <laughs> of this conversation. I'm going to make sure that I post uh, for everyone who are, who's interested in reading their, their books and the books that go beyond the two that we've spent the most time discussing. I'll provide relevant links in the description, the show notes of this podcast and also on YouTube as well. Andy, Glenn, thank you again for your time. Thanks so much. That was great. Thanks so much, Paul. Today's video and podcast wouldn't be possible without the generous support of listeners and viewers just like you over on Patreon. I want to give an extra special thanks to Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, David, Eli, Elise, Jesse, John Mark, John Michael, Josie, Justin, Kirk, Lola, Luke H., Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Rob, Sam P., Sarah R. and Taylor S. Thank you all for your generous support.